Please be seated. We'll have one final word of prayer before we come to the preached word. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that as we hear your word, that Lord, you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Lord, I do pray that you would be with me. Strengthen me, Lord, you know my weakness. Lord, you know that this is useless if it's all of me, it's all of Josh. Lord, we need your spirit to be here. We need your spirit to make alive your word. Lord, we do pray that you would do this. Lord, we thank you for the offering. Lord, we thank you for how blessed we are materially here in the West in comparison to many other parts of the world. And Lord, we do pray that you would give wisdom to the leadership of this church. That Lord, as we seek to further your kingdom here, that Lord, we would use this money wisely in a way that glorifies you. So Lord, we ask that you would be with us now. Lord, help me. Lord, as I go through this, what you've laid in my heart, Lord, I pray that you would increase, that I would decrease, that you receive all the glory that is due your holy and wonderful name. Amen. <coughs> so as you can tell from the reading, I've definitely got the short straw. It's a tough, tough passage um, to preach on in any time. But I think it's particularly tough uh, in the world that we live in today, a world which is without doubt very much sex mad, a world which desires um, that we just enjoy that function, sex, and they just treat it as something which is just another high, another thing that we can do to pass the time, to, it's just there to simply be enjoyed when in fact it is one of the most, what is the most intimate act that two people can ever be part of. And so we're going to look at this uh, passage, uh, and there's a number of things I want you to, to be aware of as we begin. And the first is, is just the context. A couple of weeks ago, Steve preached from uh, verse 17 down to verse 20, uh, making it clear how Christ has come to fulfill the law. And at the, the last verse of that particular passage, verse 20, it says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And no doubt as he said those words, as the Savior said those words, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been hurt by them. What do you mean exceeds? We, we are righteous. What are you talking about? We have done enough. But he is saying, here the Savior is saying, you've got to exceed that. And then the Lord goes on to explain exactly what he means by that. And we heard last week from our brother Chris about you shall not murder. And the Pharisees and the scribes and many people that would have been listening to the Savior possibly could have said to themselves, yeah, we can tick that one off. We, shall, we haven't murdered, we've kept that law, but then Christ drops this bombshell on them and says to them, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, verse 22, without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And straight away they would have all realized that's 
That's me. I've fallen short of that. There's no two ways about it. I have been angry with a brother. I have been angry with a sister. And as a result, the Lord Jesus is saying to us that we are now in danger of the judgment. And so the Pharisees and the scribes who were so determined to keep the law, keep every dot of it, keep every cross of tea, they would have, they would have been so full of themselves, and, and they were so full of themselves because, and as far as they are concerned, they had done it. They understood what the Old Testament was truly about. And when God passed his laws down, this one that Chris covered, you shall not murder, the sixth commandment, and then we're, what we're going to be looking at this evening, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. They thought in their hearts that was a legal requirement in order to be right with God. They had not understood that God desired a relationship with them, a personal, intimate relationship with them. And there's another passage that I want to just draw your attention to and follow along in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. Oh, let me read the, the context, verse 34 down to verse 37, and also taking in down to verse 40. And it says this, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You see, they're obsessed with the law. And especially what I'm going to be speaking on this evening, there's going to be a number of things which are going to be quite hard to hear. They're not going to be nice to hear. And you could, and the reaction could be, well, I'm still within the law. I've not broken the law. And you might try to get technical with yourself and try to say, well, I'm still okay because of X, Y, and Z. This is what Jesus' reply was to those that have a desire to get technical, the desire to, as it were, get legal about it. And Jesus said to him, the lawyer, the pharisaical lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You shall love, not you shall keep the Lord's law, but that you shall love the Lord your God. And then he follows it up and he says, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so when we come to the passage which we are going to be dealing with, that is the frame that I want you to be viewing it from. Not the, what can I get away with frame, what, what, what is falling within the law frame, but the framework of you have to live a life that is in, a, in keeping with loving God as the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor. And so that is the framework in which I want you to hear what the rest I've got to say on, and on these verses. Because I am fully aware that I am dealing with a very personal subject. Sex and what you have done sexually. 
and where you have fallen short sexually. And this can make people feel, and it should feel, very dirty because it is such an intimate and personal thing. When we start to point out the sin that is often committed when it comes to sex. And then obviously we finish the last two verses deal with an even possibly more sensitive subject of divorce. And that can be equally hard, or even more so, because in some and maybe many situations, that divorce is final. It's irreversible. You can't go back. You can't amend it. What's done is done. It's damaged. It's over. And so it's difficult to hear when someone comes along, like me, and begins to say things from the Word of God that is difficult to hear. But they're being said from a place that the Lord desires purity. He desires love with you, an intimate relationship with you. And one of the first things that needs in any relationship that you desire to embark on with someone is that there is this clearing of the air. There is this confession, I acknowledge I've not got this right. And I need someone. I need a savior. And obviously that is where the glorious gospel steps and, and so I've got my title for you, <clears throat> Dangerously and Deliberately Divorced from Reality. Dangerously and Deliberately Divorced from Reality. And the reason for that title is because I am fully aware, especially as a young man, knowing how I was in my teenage years, how often I would convince myself of an alternative reality when it came to God. And it came to what God's expectations were for me and my sexual life. And this is something which I've battled with as a, as a teenager and even as an early adult. And even to this day, it would be wrong for me to assume that I've pulled through it. And you might be sitting there well older than me, double my age, whatever it might be. You would be wrong to think that you are in the clear of this. It's sad to say there are too many instances of people who have got later into life and who seem to have got all these decades of a life and service in the church and to God, but then fall at the end. Pride comes before a fall. And so be aware, be on your guard. And so I've got three points for you in this. Deliberate, Danger, divorce. Deliberate, danger, divorce. Dealing with the first one, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27 says this, <clears throat> You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Obviously, harking back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and obviously what I've said previously is that the Pharisees had this in their idea. We, we, can, we can say we haven't done this. We've ticked this off. We're all right. We're all good. We can go down the Ten Commandments. We get to this particular one and we can put a big fat tick next to it because we're all right. But as you would be well aware, just because a husband or a wife have not committed the act of adultery does not mean in and of itself 
that they are a good husband, that they are a good wife. But this is how the Pharisees viewed it. As far as we are concerned, a good marriage looks like this, that I am faithful, that I have not committed adultery. And there the law begins and there the law ends. They've not understood the love element with God. They've not understood the personal and intimate relationship that God desires for someone. And as a result of that first and great commandment, the second follows after. And what does Christ say? It says it's like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so when it comes to that element of it, if I, Josh Richardson, is faithful to my wife, Bryony Richardson, but I spend all my time away from Bryony, locked up in my study, I could even be spending it doing good things. I could be doing it, doing, being up at my study, studying the Hebrew and the Greek. And there's a part of me that quite likes that idea. Not spending time with her, not showing her love and affection, but just locking myself away just so that I can study and, and get, grow my own knowledge. Every evening I get back, I have my dinner, I'm straight out back out the door, maybe even to do a good thing. And I've been faithful not going out there committing adultery. I could be doing all sorts of good things, all sorts of good works, but there's no love. And the Pharisees viewed this as a way to say, right, we have a good marriage. We haven't committed adultery, but there is no love. And then the Lord goes on to redefine, as it were, not redefine it, but to define it further for them, and he says this in verse 28. He's dealt with the old way of viewing things. And he says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman, whoever ogles at a woman to lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this isn't the, you know, walking down the street, you, you spot someone un, inappropriately dressed and you avert your eyes and you keep continuing to walk on. No, this is the deliberate look lustful look within your heart, you desire that person. You desire that individual. And in your mind, you've gone to that place and you have sexually gone there with them. And this is what the Savior is saying, like he did with thou sh you shall not commit murder. He's saying if you've done it in your heart, then you've committed it. Then you've broken the commandment. And we've all been there. We've all done that. We've all looked at someone with a lustful intent, with a desire to sexually be with them. And we might not have gone through with it, but it's there. James chapter 1, verse 14 to 15 says this, but each one is tempted. It's very true. We're all tempted. It's all part of life. But then he moves on. Being tempted is not the sin, but he goes on. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away, when he is moved on by his temptations, by his own desires, and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, and when it is fully grown, when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. 
And so this is what we need to be aware of, is that these deliberate acts are noticed. They're noticed not just by God, but by others. And this might come as a bit of a shock to you. You might think, well, no, that girl, that boy, they didn't know my, my looking at them. They didn't know what was going on in my mind. They didn't, they didn't see that. What are you talking about? They didn't know. Well, in the last, what, few years, we've had this revolution, haven't we, of some sorts. Now it's gone too far in many ways. But this fight against the powerful man being able to use his position to abuse. And in many ways, these individuals thought they'd got away with it. And it comes down to even the, the working class. And then the builder, as the girl walks by the building site, the wolf whistling, the ogling that goes on. And for us as Christians, it might not be as blatant as that, but the reality is the world knows. We all know. It's not a case of you've got away with it. We all know. God knows. And you might think in your heart, it's a victimless crime. It's not a problem. It's a victimless sin. It's not. When you start to consider how we began this, and what did we say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor. Let me ask you, where is the love in that lustful look? Where is the love in your mind when you go there? It's not there. It's not present. We have broken that commandment, clear and simply. And so as a result of this, you have offended God. Looks at a woman to lust for her has already offended, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The offense has happened. You have offended God and you have offended your neighbor. I was, many years ago, um, cutting up a turnip. You might think, where on earth is this going? Well, I was making some soup for my, my family, for my brothers and sisters, for my mum. It was lunchtime. I had this fairly blunt knife, and it just wasn't working, trying to cut through this turnip. So what I decided in my stupidity was to take the blade out of the blender, uh, had no proper handle to it, and I was just chopping away. It was working wonders, this thing. And then it slipped. And now I've got a, ha a pretty decent scar that goes right along my hand there. I can't remember how many stitches exactly, but it was double digits. But on the way to the hospital, we got a taxi to the hospital because mom's car was in the garage. It was a proper disaster. Blood was everywhere in the kitchen. It was brilliant. And on the, on the taxi... The taxi driver, and he was aware of what had happened, he started to tell us a story. He told us how he was a butcher before he was a taxi driver. And he told us how there was this time when he was chopping up this meat. He had this meat on the counter. He was hammering away with it with his butcher's cleaver. And in walks a fairly attractive young lady. And as he is bringing down his, his butcher's cleaver onto this bit of meat, he, rather than watching where he's going, he watches this young lady and you can guess what happened next. He took off a fairly substantial part of his hand as a result. Now, quite remarkably, and this is where his big boast came in, was that the fact that the doctors were able to piece it all back together again. He was quite proud of his hand. 
But nevertheless, my mother gave him uh, a bit of an earful, explaining how, well, that serves you right, young man. This leads me quite nicely, a nice segue into the next part of my sermon, point two, the danger, because this is what it says in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. There is the danger. And we live in a society, especially today, where it's so easy, isn't it, to watch something, and you sit down fully intentionally to watch something innocent, to just be entertained for that next hour, that hour and a half, that two hours. But in the back of your mind, you know there is the risk that what you're about to watch will contain some sort of sexual image. It will have in it something which you know you should not be watching. But nevertheless, you will sit there and you will watch it. And as you go through it, watching it, it could be very well the case that you get through that, that film and that sex scene or that sexual act that took place during that film meant nothing to you at the time. But as time goes on, that image comes back. And you remember it because it's burned into your imagination. And you know it. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm pointing the finger at you. I'm saying this because I know it's happened to me. And there's things that I've seen that I can't unsee. The boat is gone. The ship has sailed. And so it's very careful as we teach the kids, watch your eyes, watch your eyes, what they see. What's the next line? Well, there's a father up above looking down in tender love. Watch your eyes, watch your eyes, what they see. That's a tough standard. That's difficult. Josh, you have any idea how often people ask me, how many series, have you watched this series? Have you watched that film? Have you, did you see that happen? It's rubbish not being part of that, not being able to be enjoy a part of that. Well, the Bible's clear. It's better that you pluck your eye out for one member of your body to be disposed of than for you to spend eternity in hell. That's well, quite the jump. But this is what happens, brothers and sisters. Sex is incredible. How it infiltrates your soul. How it gets in there. It continues. Your hand. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish especially in this day and age. We live in a day and age, and I know this because I grew up with the internet, where it very rarely stops at watching. Very, very rarely stops at watching. And before too long, there are sins that have gone from watching to action. And for my generation, and for the generation that's coming up, you would be hard-pressed to find a young man, and in many cases a young woman, that is not addicted to pornography and masturbation. It's a sad fact, but it is the reality. And for too long, the church has tried dangerously and deliberately to divorce itself from that reality. 
and we've overlooked it, and we've not talked about it. We haven't mentioned it. But it is a sin. And what's more, it is a sin that can lead you to hell itself. And so when that warning comes, watch your eyes, watch your eyes, what they see. Watch your hands, watch your hands, what they do. Remember, he's saying this because there's a father up above looking down in tender love. Watch your eyes, watch your eyes, watch your hands, watch your hands, what they see and do. Because, brothers and sisters, what you are playing with is your very soul. That verse finishes, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Difficult, hard, but there is the truth for you. There was a poem that I'd like to just read to you. Not all of it. Let me just give you the context of it. In the early part of the American War, the American Civil War, a young woman of 22 years died at Commercial Hospital in Cincinnati, America, in the dead of winter. She had once possessed the enviable share of beauty that young women have. She'd been greatly sought after for her charms. She was she, her face was a delight, but she had become a prostitute. Highly educated and accomplished in manners, she had spent her young life in shame and she died friendless as a broken-hearted outcast of society. Among her personal effects was found in manuscript the poem called Beautiful Snow. The poem was written by the girl before she died to describe her life. It was taken to the editor of the National Union newspaper and appeared in print the morning after her death. When the poem appeared in the paper, the girl's body had not been buried, and the American poet, Thomas Buchanan Reed, was so impressed by the stirring pathos of the poem that he followed the corpse to its final resting place. Now, the poem is very long. But this is part of what it said. Oh, the snow, the beautiful snow, filling the sky and the earth below, over the housetops, over the street, over the heads of the people you meet, dancing, flirting, skimming along, beautiful snow, it can do no wrong, flying to a kiss, a fair lady's cheek, clinging to lips in frolicsome freak, Beautiful snow from the heavens above, pure as an angel and gentle as love. Once I was pure as the snow, but I fell, fell like the snowflakes from heaven to hell, fell to be trampled as filth from the street, fell to be scoffed, to be spat on and beat, pleading and cursing and dreading to die, selling my soul to whoever would buy, stealing in shame for a morsel of bread, hating the living and fearing the dead. Merciful God, have I fallen so, so low, and yet I was once like the beautiful snow. Once I was fair as the beautiful snow, with an eye like its crystal and a heart like its glow. Once I was loved for my innocent grace, flattered and sought for the charms of my face. Father, mother, sister, and all, God and myself, I have lost by my fall. The various wretch that goes shivering by will make a white scoop lest I wander too nigh. For all that is on or above me I know, there's nothing as pure as beautiful snow. How strange it should be that this beautiful snow should fall on a sinner with nowhere to go. How strange it should be when night comes again if the snow and the ice struck my desperate brain. Fainting, freezing, dying alone, too wicked for prayer, too weak for a moan, <coughs> to be heard in the streets 
of the crazy town, gone mad in the joy of the snow coming down, to lie and to die in my terrible woe with a bed and a shroud of the beautiful snow. Sometime later, this verse was added by another pen. Helpless and frail as the trampled snow, sinner, despair not, Christ stoops low to rescue the soul that is lost in its sin and raise it to life and enjoyment again. Groaning, bleeding, dying for thee, the crucified hung, made a curse on the tree. His accents of mercy fall soft on thine ear. Is there mercy for me? Will he heed my prayer? O God, in the stream that for sinner does flow, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. I made it clear. I'm not preaching at you. I know the temptations have fallen. I would say that in years gone by, I've been addicted to the very things I've preached about. But I am found in him. I am found in the Savior. I am found in his love. And I know that he has washed me. And now I'm as white as snow. And so no matter what the background may be, know that the Savior is there. And what he did on the cross is available to us here this evening. The final two verses, let me touch on these. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Once again, Christ is dealing with the the old way of doing things. This is referring back uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 5. It's a difficult passage of Scripture to understand. It's very technical. There's a lot to go into it. But the word divorce in the Hebrew, if you were to look into Deuteronomy, that word divorce, the root word for it is to hack, to destroy, to mutilate, as it were, a body. And the image very much is that when you have that one flesh, when a man and a woman come together and they become one flesh, that divorce is the hacking away of that one flesh. It is the dismembering of that body. It is not a light thing. It is not an easy thing. It's a horrific thing. It's a horrendous thing. And for the world out there who continually and consistently tell us to live your best life now, to make sure that you're happy, that's what matters. You've only got one shot at this life. You don't want to be stuck in a marriage which is horrible, which isn't going anywhere. Make sure you're happy. Once again, I point you to the two great commandments. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we live in a day and age where divorce is just so easy, and it's getting easier. And there is very little regard for the fact that the actions of one individual doesn't just end with that person and their spouse. It impacts the father and the mother of that person. It impacts the in-laws of that person. And what's more, it impacts the children of that person. Divorce is horrific. 
It's horrendous, even in the best of circumstances. It is horrific. I had the unfortunate experience of getting to know someone who explained their experience like this. They were sitting downstairs at a desk. Upstairs, they could hear mum and dad arguing. It's not the first time. It happened many times before. Dad had failed again, messed up again, begging forgiveness. Mum was not giving it. He comes downstairs. The boy that's sitting at the desk is the eldest. So he sits down beside his eldest and explains, look, I've messed up again. Mum wants me to leave. I think this is the end. I'm really sorry. The boy is old enough. He's mid-teens. He understands what's gone on. He gets it. He knows why mum has got to this point. He understands all the ins and outs of it all. But this is damaging. Even though he understands that this in many ways is what needs to happen, he can't get his head around the fact that it is now happening. And as he crumbles before his dad's eyes, he begs that this doesn't happen, that we don't go down this road. He asks that it doesn't happen. And mercifully, that father and that mother were able to reconcile and move on. But there was something within that lad at that moment that snapped, that broke. And he's never forgotten it. And he never will. And it often affects him. There's no such thing as a sin or even an action, an argument that stays between one person and another. Very often it will affect everyone else around. And divorce is one of those. And so the Pharisees had been treating this very lightly. Give the certificate of divorce. Move on. But Christ steps in. He says, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So Christ relays the foundation for marriage. Makes it very clear. This is not to be played with. And if you know your Bibles at all, be very familiar with what marriage is to represent Christ and his church. That Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. What did Christ do for his bride? He gave everything, absolutely everything, that he might win his bride, the church. And what does he ask of his bride? He asked of his bride that we give everything. That we give everything in his service for him. And that is the, the picture for marriage. That it's not a, this is what I want, and that's what you want, and we'll try and work it out. No, there's a, I'm here to serve my spouse. My spouse is there to serve me. And in that attitude of service, we move forward. And in this framework, brothers and sisters, as the church of Christ. That's what we desire. We desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? 
because you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Amen. We're going to sing in closing. O come, all you unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come know that you are not alone. O come barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, 
both now and forever. Amen.